Hello, my dear podcast listeners. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you all listened to part one of Ben's podcast and I've come back for more. This time, we are delving deep into Ben's experiences competing for the oldest trophy in world sport, that elusive America's Cup. If you haven't listened to part one, maybe scroll back and give it a go first. It's full of anecdotes from Ben's Olympic journey, his epic showdowns with Brazilians Robert Scheid in the laser, and his intense battle to win gold at London 2012, his home games. A feat he's adamant was his toughest Olympic win of all time. As I said at the start of part one, the day we recorded the pod with Ben was an exciting one. We met him at the America's Cup team base and for the first time in months, the team were preparing for a day on the water. Like many of us, the sailing team at INEOS Team UK have been in lockdown. And during that time, the boat has been transported back from its winter base in Sardinia. It's been months since we've seen the imposing, almost shadow-like outline of the AC-75 flying around the Solent. But Ben and the team were all readying for their first foray out onto home waters for quite some time. So it was heartening to see. Big thanks must go to Ben himself before we get underway. Sitting down for over two hours to record the podcast. It's such a busy time, it's much appreciated. And the results, well, he's had an incredible career. There's so much we could have talked about, but in this edition, we're all about the cup, how he first got involved, what it was like winning it, and of course, how things are shaping up as racing in Auckland draws ever nearer. I hope you enjoy part two of the time I spent with Sir Ben Ainsley. I remember Russell's phone going off. It was pretty obvious it was Larry and he wasn't too happy about what he was seeing. You know? Probably a bit more of an instinctive sailor, so I'd do random things. He was sat having dinner with Stanley McChrystal and Condoleezza Rice. And I sat down, started talking about the America's Cup. So far, Ben, we've been all about the Olympics. There's been a lot more to your sailing than that, of course. Match racing, big boat sailing. But we do have some time constraints. So we're going to turn to the Cup now. And I'm guessing that after that display of ruthless boat handling and tactics you put on at the Games in Sydney, that the phone started ringing. What was your first America's Cup experience? Yeah, that's right. Actually, uh, Peter Gilmore, who was then, I think, number one maturation in the world, well, certainly up there with Russell Coote, uh, had been asked to put together a, a US team uh, for Seattle Yacht Club, owned by a guy called Craig McCaw, who was uh, Nextel. And this was just before the dot-com bubble burst in, in 2000. And so I spoke and Peter came to, actually I was in Sydney, he was there, I went to see him even before the games and we chatted about getting involved, they were putting this team together um, and some of the best names in American sailing, the um, McKee brothers, uh, Morgan Larson, Kevin Hall, some really, really um, good talented guys like that. Um, Laurie Davidson, who was a designer for Team New Zealand in 95. So, um, Again, some real, real top designers. Um, 
had had the financial backing. Uh, also had some of the key sailors from Team New Zealand, guys like Rick Dodson, Andrew Taylor, Jeremy Scantlebury. Um, so yeah, real top team. So I I thought yeah, this is a great opportunity to get involved at the highest level and and learn, you know, from the top guys in the game. It was a bit of a tricky decision because Peter Harrison, quite late in the game, came in and and put in his challenge, GBR challenge. And I remember having a period of sort of trying to umming and ahhing about whether to go with the British team or which was going to be a first first time at it, which is always tough, uh, or going with a more with a team with lots of experienced people who'd, who'd won the cup and had designers who'd won the cup. So I ended up going for the with Peter Gilmore, who was a great guy. I, I did quite a lot of match racing with Peter as his sort of main sheet hand stroke tactician, and and we had a, we had a great time. Um, but the team itself was quite a tough experience because, you know, I was only 21, 22 when I went there. I, you know, spent my life in single-handers. As we talked about, I was pretty shy uh, when I was younger. And I didn't really have, other than Peter, who was busy running the team, I didn't really have any, necessarily any support. You know, I wasn't get, going there with any mates or anything like that. Um, and I actually remember Jimmy and a lot of his guys, so Joey Newton, Ben Durham, Andy Feathers, they came in about the same time that I joined, and that was great because they were a similar age and really good, good lads, good Aussie, Aussie bunch, and so that I enjoyed that. But at the same time, I couldn't really see a pathway to, you know, how I fitted in in terms of what my role was. And, and Peter was always quite keen, and I did lots of different jobs on the boat, which was great. So I went up the mast, I did the runners, I, I did some trimming, um, did a little bit of helming. But I was kind of doing lots of different jobs, not really focusing on anything. And, and so I could kind of see a point. I didn't really know how I was going to actually get to do any racing. And um, I remember one day we were out training and doing some training racing. And um, we trawled the spinnaker and I was doing tactics. And so I ran forwards in the boat to try and help retrieve the spinnaker. I remember, I won't say his name because it's not really fair, but he just, one of the older experienced guys, and he just lost it in me because he's like, you never, you never leave your position. What are you doing up here? You never, and I was like, well, yeah, mate, if you hadn't noticed, we're trawling the spinnaker. So unless we can get that out of the water, you know, we're not going anywhere anyway. And, and I just kind of thought, oh, I don't really need this. And I don't know, just something snapped and I just thought I don't really want to do this anymore. So it was a really difficult decision because like I said, I was only young and I kind of really, really experienced top guys in the America's Cup game. And I realized I was going to take a bit of a hit. My reputation was going to take a bit of a hit as a team player and someone that you'd look to for the America's Cup. But at the same time, I just felt like uh, it wasn't really where I wanted to be. And, and so I, uh, I left, left the team. I remember P Peter saying to me, well, that's OK. You can do that but you're going to have to stand up in front of everyone and explain to them why you're leaving, which is a complete hospital pass. And I, I still don't, I, I mean, I get on really well with Peter and if we don't have any problems at all, but I, I, I'm not quite sure why I did that. Cause I remember certainly if in my position I'm in now, I'd never ask some youngster to go and do that. Cause it's, you know, especially in front of all these sort of legends of the America's cup. So I felt like a complete idiot when I had to sort of stand up in front of them and tell them why I was leaving. But they were, you know, they, you know, they're much more experienced. They've seen plenty of people come and go 
in the sport and um, they were all very nice about it and uh, they went on did okay they had some issues with funding when the tech bubble burst and unfortunately Craig McCall lost, lost a lot of money and that was all tied up with the funding of the team um, but they got to the to the semis and and uh, I think lost eventually to Alinghi or Oracle I can't remember which um, and that, that was that campaign so I, I kind of learned a lot as a, it was a as a sticking his sort of nose into the America's Cup world. Um, uh, but it was uh, ultimately, it was a disappointing end, you know. I, I, I really didn't like leaving a team like that. I, I really struggled with the decision, but it came to the point where I just felt I had to, had to get out of it and get back to um, doing some, something which I uh, knew a bit better, which was Olympic sailing. And, and then that got me into the fin, which was, which was a great move. Did it put you off the America's Cup? I mean, did you leave thinking, yeah, I still want to be involved with, in this, but just not in this scenario? Yeah. <laughs> or, or did yeah. you think that you had to be involved to be taken seriously? Yeah, it was frustrating because as a kid, as I said earlier, I grew up in Cornwall. I remember as I was maybe about 10 years old, I was sitting around in my Optimus with some mates and they, Peter DeSavery had his America's Cup team then and he had some 12 metres and they were out there training. And I remember watching these 12 meters from a distance and just thinking, those boats look amazing. And I just really want to be involved with that somehow in the future, the America's Cup. And then I started watching it on telly and, and so on. I really, really got into it and watched the 95 Cup, um, uh, not, sorry, 92, 93, and then 95. And Team New Zealand obviously winning, dominating in 95. And that massive, massive sort of desire, ambition to be involved with the cup and try and win the cup for Britain or just win the cup full stop, but to ideally to win it for Britain. And so, yeah, I was really frustrated because my first experience had been ultimately not being good. And as I'd said, I was kind of worried that I kind of ruined my reputation in professional sailing because you don't walk out of a team like that, really. Um, well, so, you, you know, it's pretty hard to get back in once you've done that. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a big, big decision. And um, anyway, I um, got out of it, went into the Finn, had a great time with the Finn. And then Grant Dalton emailed me in uh, 2000 and, uh, 2001. No, sorry, not 2001, 2003, uh, just after the, the Kiwis had lost to Olingi. And he'd been charged with putting Team New Zealand back together. And, um, you know, I just, uh, so he came and we met, actually I was doing the World Championships in Cadiz in the Finn in 2003 and he came over to Cadiz and we met and just instantly got on really well because anyone who knows Daltz, he's a complete straight shooter and I, I like that in people, I can't, you know, people who sort of, you know, aren't really direct and, you know, say one thing and mean something else, I always find that a bit of a struggle. So um, he's... Uh, we had a great conversation, you know, he talked about how he wanted to rebuild the team, you know, still around Dean and the core guys and the, some of the designers that he was talking about bringing in. And it just sounded, you know, obviously the reputation of Team New Zealand is huge in sailing. And so, again, I thought, well, it's a great opportunity um, to get involved and, and try and, and um, do a bit better than the last campaign and learn more about professional sailing in the America's Cup. And I, and I kind of liked Grant Dalton, so I thought, I'll, I'll do it. And then did the games in Athens, then went straight to Valencia where they had the first uh, act, as they called them, uh, which was both match racing and fleet racing in the version five boats. And my role was as a strategist. 
and Terry Hutchinson was a tactician, Dean was a helmsman. And we actually did really well in the event. I think we won, I think we won the match racing or we were second in the match racing. Well, you know, either first or second in the fleet racing, the match racing. But it was just kind of clear that that, that strategist role wasn't really the right, right role for me. And with the personalities that were there, it just, it just wasn't really going to fit. So rather than do three years getting frustrated, I had a, had a chat with Grant and said, I, I think, sorry, but it's probably not going to work. Um, but you've got two boats. There's an option there that you need a second helmsman, a backup for Dean if something he gets injured, and also for the in-house racing to, to build that up and have intense in-house racing. And so thankfully he said, yeah, look, I think that's great. You know, take that on. And for me, it was great because I wanted to learn how to match race. I hadn't really done much of that. And, and, that, and also to steer those bigger boats. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fantastic team. Some really great people in that team. You know, one thing with Grant Dalton is for the budget that he has, he does an amazing job of getting bang for buck. And, uh, you know, it was a really solid campaign, seriously close to winning it. Uh, Lingi were an ama uh, amazing team. Okay, didn't have Russell anymore, but still an amazing team with Brad and, and the guys. Um, it was frustrating not racing. Um, that, was, that was a fr frustrating period, but, you know, the build up to that, the ability to learn how to match race and um, to be with a top team. Um, yeah, I learned a huge, huge amount through that. Um, and then that led into uh, to Team Origin with Keith. You've obviously sailed against Dean on many occasions. You had a bit of a coming together, didn't you, with Team Japan in Bermuda in the oh, last yeah. cup. <laughs> um, he's helming the America's boat yeah. in, in this approaching cup. Yeah. What did you learn about Dean in your time with Team New Zealand? Uh, well, he's a phenomenally good match racer. Technically, I think G Dean and Jimmy are technically um, at that period, you know, I mean, match racing's changed a lot now. The whole game's completely changed, but then they were the best technically. Um, very, very hard in terms of all the set moves. Very hard to sort of get them out of their their rhythm, um, and that was really the only way. And and they had great teams around them, so fast and had all of the set plays worked out after you know they both sort of grew up match racing, so it was sort of ingrained in them. So for me, it was a lot of time. It took a long time to learn those plays and how that worked out and then um you know i'm a, probably a bit more of an instinctive sailor so i do random things um which sometimes work but more often not than the set play which those guys have worked out after years and years of doing it so um big yeah great great learning opportunity to go up against dean you know day in day out um and uh, and learn that match racing game and it you know and get reasonably good at it in the end it was uh, it took a while but Dean yeah Dean technically very good you know great um I think great with the team quite quiet um sort of leading by example really I think um but yeah it's pretty pretty solid as a sailor yeah it's hard to cop isn't it in many ways I mean you're British you want to fly the flag but you want to compete with a team that has a real chance of achieving something. But by 2010, you joined Sir Keith Mills, a huge investor in our sport. I mean, a man with a reputation for getting things done. He'd set up Team Origin. There was plenty of talent involved. You joined a skipper and finally you're with a British Cup team. 
Mm. Was there a thought early on that the team could be competitive? Uh, and what happened to the team? Yeah, I think there was a lot of hope that it could be a competitive team. You know, we had some great sailors, um, Person Bart, um, you know, Cat Flat, great mate of mine, um, and some good sort of um, Antipodean additions, bringing in um, some good some good experience. And actually, the last race we did was out here, the 1851 Cup in the version five boats, where we did some exhibition match racing against Oracle, uh, Jimmy and the guys of Oracle, and we had. We had Simon, Daubney, Warwick Flurry, Rodney Dern. Um, we had Matt Mitchell helping Cat Flap on the bow. And we, we had a fantastic series. You know, we really, we really took it to them and had some great... I think anyone who did that series just loved it because the boats were quite old by that stage and they changed Rule 17. So actually, if you got an overlap from behind, you could just luff someone straight away. <laughs> so we were just ripping around the solent, luffing each other head to wind with the spinnakers up and just causing all sorts of carnage, um, but having some great racing. And we, we ended up winning out the this, this series. And so, yeah, it was, it was a shame that then we, they, you know, had the deed of gift race with Aningi that took a couple of years to go through the courts and then build the boats and have the race. I think a lot of people in the America's Cup world were massively frustrated by all of that because it then been between, you know, so you had a hiatus of uh, six, six years or so between cups, which, you know, my generation of sailors, that's six years of your career, really. Unless you were in one of those two teams, you weren't, you weren't competing. Um, so that was, that was a really frustrating period. And again, you just think to the sport overall, it's frustrating that things like that can happen and surely we can do a better job to try and get the right leadership in, in sailing to avoid things like that happening. But anyway, that, that was the situation. And unfortunately, Keith, you know, quite understandably looked at what it was costing, what it was going to cost to keep going, and um, and it just wasn't the right thing. So um, that was a real shame because we had a great team. We got Grant, uh, Mike Sanderson was involved at the beginning, and then Grant Simmer came in, um, uh, and um, we had some some great designers, good good solid squad. So I think there was a lot of um, potential in that, but unfortunately, we never got to see it to fruition. Must have been quite frustrating for you because finally you feel like you're, you're yeah, sort of getting there. It was. We felt, yeah, and I was, worked a lot with Keith really closely on putting the team together and getting the right people involved. He, he was great, Keith. And um, it was a really sad moment. Again, quite a pivotal moment though because at that point I was working really hard on the team and I didn't really see a way I could do both that and, and the Olympics 2012. So actually in bringing you close to that, um, Keith sort of inadvertently then opened the, the Olympic Avenue back up for me. One of the most talked about subjects on this podcast is, of course, San Francisco 2013. Yeah. Uh, I've yet to interview anyone from the New Zealand book for the pod. We'll, we'll get there. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> but we have spoken it's, to... Yeah, I'm sure it's, it's amazing how, uh, you know, the story, you know, evolves as time goes by. Yeah. It would be... Yeah, it would be great to get some, some Kiwi uh, aspect to it. We'll definitely get to New Zealand. But we have spoken to Kyle Langford, Russell Coates, and of course, Jimmy Spittle, all from Oracle Team USA. The winning boat back at the 2013 Cup, they each have their own very specific stories to tell on how it all went down. But for you, Ben, again, you'd taken the position of B-boat skipper, so pushing Jimmy Spittle in the build-up to the Cup. And you then watched as the team lost race 
after race to the Kiwis. What were you thinking throughout the early stages of the Cup? Well, you've got to go back further through the campaign, and I, I know you talked in depth to many people about this, but you know it was a really bizarre Cup. And I actually, looking ahead to this next Cup, I see a lot of similarities in the way things are playing out. Um, a yeah, new class of boat. I mean, the Oroca campaign was really um, not necessarily for anyone's fault, but it was just it'd been a set a lot of setbacks. You know, the boat capsized, got taken out with the ebb tide, broken up in San Francisco Bay. Then had to rebuild that, try and get a second boat going. Then, uh, you know, obviously uh, horrendously had the Artemis um, crash. So it'd been a really, uh, and then the sort of um, AC45 measurement debacle. <laughs> so it'd been kind of shambolic, really. And going into it, no one had really lined up against each other that much in the 72s. We knew the Kiwis had been going really well just by monitoring um, uh, their performance and how they were handling and so on, and then how they performed through the Challenger series. And But at Oracle, we had our own set of problems, which was talked about. And I'd come into the team quite late on the back of 2012. Um, in a sort of similar role to you know the role that I did at Team New Zealand, um, and frankly didn't do that much sailing because as I said we destroyed one boat, had to rebuild it, and then get the get the other boat out. So, and the the amount of people and manpower, you know, the manpower logistics it took to operate two boats was um, was really uh, took a lot of time. And so we only sailed two boats. I don't know, probably fifteen. 10, 15 times, something like that. Uh, so I hadn't really done a huge amount, to be honest. And then we got racing, knew the key was going to be tough. Straight out of the block, the performance was similar-ish. They, they certainly had an edge early, early on. And, and, um, and the race, you know, as you said, the racing was clearly going their way. There were a couple of close races in there, but they always seemed to squeak through and then they seemed to have a slight speed edge. And then, yeah, I remember it must have been race five, I suppose. We were watching and we were, um, Jimmy, guys had a, had a good start, were in the lead, were leading around the bottom gate and then, you know, did this move, which actually, to be fair, tactically was the right thing to do to get early, came around the right hand gate and try and do a sort of foiling tack and get into the cone of Alcatraz, get the tidal relief. But for whatever reason, made a mess of the maneuver and kind of fell off the foils, then ended up being a slow tack. And the Kiwis just came round, ducked behind them, had loads more speed and actually the next cross, I think we're ahead. And, um, and I remember a bit, I was in the boat with Russell and Grant and, and um, I remember Russell's phone going off and it kind of was a bit, you know, it was slightly held off his ear and um, it was pretty obvious it was Larry and he wasn't too happy about what he was seeing, you know. I'm like, oh God, you know, what's going to happen now? And then he just turned around to me and he said, oh, you, you better get your wetsuit on, you know. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, I think we're going to have to do something. I said, look, I can't, well, for a start, I haven't got my wetsuit with me, so that's not going to work. And, and, and secondly, you know, like, don't, you don't need me to tell you, but, we, you know, and Russ, Russell's obviously a super experienced guy, um, rightly decided that he needed to speak to Jimmy. And um, so as you could, you sort of called a delay and then 
uh, Russell and Jimmy had a good chat about things and uh, you know I was sort of at the back of the boat so sort of thinking well I don't really know how this is going to play out and I don't you know I've never I haven't looked at any of the tactical software or whatever if they asked me to do that role I'm not really sure how it's going to play out anyway they made the right decision which was to take a spare day which you could and go back to the base and regroup um, and then um, and then eventually after a while they I wasn't involved in, in the discussions, but they decided that they wanted to, to, to switch JK out and put me in a, in a tactical role, which was tough, obviously really tough for JK. And, you know, the first thing I did was just phone him up and chat it through. And to be fair, he was, he was amazing. His response was just brilliant. I think sort of true class and professionalism, which was, yeah, look, I'm, I'm disappointed, but I want the team to win and I'll help, help you do whatever you need to do to run through all the software and so on. Um, so we spent the next day here, helped me out a lot going through that and how it all worked because I hadn't seen any of it. And, um, and we had a day's practice, but most importantly, and what really, you know, I think most people will say changed the game for us. The designers did a really good job looking at how we could load up the, the wing more and get the center of effort lower and load up the foils. And we made that setup change and that, that had a huge impact on the performance. Then we worked out, oh, actually, we might be able to... We played around with foiling upwind in practice, but normally the, we could only get foiling momentarily, and then we... Normally we screwed up the manoeuvre, so it kind of... The, the amount of, of, of gain line we chewed up by getting on the foil in the first place, we didn't normally get that back. So we kind of hadn't really played, it, played around with it enough in the build-up to be confident that it would work. And so therefore we weren't using it in the racing. And then I think with this setup change, it just, like I said, loading up the foils and all, it just powered the boat up. And we found we were able to get on the foil earlier and obviously have a lot of success with that. And that was, that was a real game changer. Um, and that was, you know, great team effort really with the designers looking at it with the sailors, the shore crew working through the night to make the, implement those changes and then going out and, and learning the techniques of how to sail the boat. So it's a fascinating period because this is all in the middle of the event. Um, so yeah, it was great. It's amazing to be, to be a part of that and experience that. Did you have any hesitation? I mean, how, how did you approach it? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, a couple of people, you know, good mate, Brad Butterworth, who's a really good, good mate over the years and then mate I mean he's one of my sort of heroes if you like one of the sort of people like Russell and, and, and Paul Elstrom and those kind of guys um, he I remember and he's a kind of super smart guy Brad and sort of kind of a bit, has a sort of bit of a Machiavellian streak I remember him saying to me oh mate you don't want to do this this is just a, you're just getting set up here for things don't work out it's all going to be on you and I could sort of see that argument but at the same time you know you've been asked to the t team, you know, I've only been with the team 12 months, but they're a really good group of guys. You sort of asked to get in there and, and help, and, you know, you're going to say yes. And um, there was always a chance that, who knows, we might be able to turn this around. And, um, yeah, so somehow we did. But there were some amazing races in there and, uh, yeah, some big, some big moments. But I got on really well with Tom Slingsby, so he and I had a good relationship. Got on well with Jimmy. Uh, he did a good, he did, you know, I think in terms of, just keeping the show on the road. Um, yeah, he did an amazing job. Uh, so, and, and of course, Russell and, and Grant and the designers and 
um, tugboat and the shore team, you know, everyone sort of pulled together. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, an amazing outcome. I mean, to the outside world, it, Jimmy was having to face some music, wasn't it? I mean, those press conferences, <laughs> yeah. they're still good value yeah. now. So, yeah, so I was sitting in there with him and yeah, I mean, he's, Jimmy's amazing. He can, you know, I know, as an unknown well, and, um, you know, knowing, uh, knowing how he operates, but you know, a lot, there's a lot of hype in there, but he's an interesting character because actually when he gets known well, he's very different from those press conferences and so on. That's, he's very much, you know, playing the game. And um, and then you go and have a, a beer or a chat, whatever. He's a very different person. So uh, yeah, it was interesting observing how that all played out. What was he like within the team at, at that time? He was he was good. He was good. I mean, he's he's the kind of guy leads by example. You know, there's no one fitter. There's no one works harder. Um, you know, he's um, yeah. I think leads by example. Um, um, and I think. Um, you know, in that moment, it was obviously, you know, just getting sort of hammered by the press, things, you know, not going at all well. You know, you have to be, you have to be a strong personality to be able to deal with that. So thankfully he was. I mean, there are other sailors I know if they'd been in that position would have just melted. Um, but, uh, you know, that Aussie larrikin in him uh, saw, saw it through, which is great. Talking to Jimmy about that time, about needing to win eight races on the bounce. He gives much credit to Carl Langford flying the wing, of course, and yeah. Tom Slingsby. But what do you think actually made the difference? How did that team go from 8-1 down, from your yeah. perspective, to lifting well, like, the car? Yeah, like I said, it was everything, really. I mean, it was that, yeah, the, the biggest factor was the change in the setup to the boat, because, you know, we probably made it, I don't know, I've done the numbers exactly, but it would have been something crazy, like 10, 15, 20% improvement upwind performance which is, 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 is huge. Uh, so that, uh, I think that then gave the sailing team more confidence. So we're sort of communicating better, making better decisions. Um, and, uh, and, and obviously the short team did an incredible job to hold the thing together. And I know Jimmy talked about, you know, breaking the control arm in the wing um, before the start of the final race. And again, the guys, jumping to it and patching things together. I mean, it was just so miraculous when you look back at all of the things that went wrong, really. And um, yeah, just uh, incredible, an incredible time. But great for the sport, because it, it really, I think, put sailing, certainly put the America's Cup back on the map. So there you were on the stage, all the confetti, the joyous celebrations of, let's face it, an utterly improbable comeback. And your hands are on the cup lifting the trophy. I mean, no British team has managed it since we first lost it. And there you are wearing the stars and stripes. How much did that moment solidify your resolve to do what you could to turn your back on Olympic sailing and focus on winning the cup back for Britain? Yeah, uh, like as I said, it's always been an ambition since I was really a young kid. And yeah, amazing to be part of that, to win the cup. We were all there on the stage and and uh, and enjoying that moment. But there was definitely a part of me that felt, well, this is this is great. That's sort of one thing sort of ticked off the off the to do list, if you like. Um, but it'd be much better if this was, <laughs> you know, not no just that was a great team. But you know, next step is can we do it with a British team? And so that 
that's what I'd, I'd already been looking at with starting BAR. We'd been racing in the World Series. Uh, Russell had been really helpful in terms of trying to help me set that team up. And um, so we had done the groundwork and then already took t talking to people like um, Keith, Charles Dunstan, uh, Chris Bakes and people like that who were, were passionate about sailing and wanted to support a UK effort. So on the back of the success of San Francisco coming back home, I was amazed by the response, how many people it sort of had attracted. I had no idea being in San Francisco, being relatively sort of hidden away and coming home and, you know, people saying, you know, been watching sailing in the pub. I mean, no one watched, you know, watched football and rugby in the pub, they don't watch sailing. Uh, so clearly it sort of got some traction. And those, you know, like I said, Keith, Charles, Chris were, were fantastic. Michael Grade, um, Robert Elliott um, came in and was sort of a core group of helping me get things going. But it was tough because we had, we set ourselves a target, you know, and Joe Grinley, who's helped me out on the commercial side for God knows how many years now, um, with the Olympics and then the Cup. So we set ourselves a target. We had to raise 25 million by the end of the year. So already then it was uh, end of September. And uh, so, we, you know, I was then on the road funding, financing road going around. Uh, it was sponsored by JP Morgan for my Olympic campaign. So I was actually living in New York at the time with Georgie. Um, and uh, so I spent quite a lot of time with JP Morgan. I remember going to, they had an event for some of their key leaders down in, in Kibis game and going and, uh, and meeting Jamie Dimon for the first time and trying to convince him to back a British team, you know, just JP Morgan, Chase, you know, largest bank in the world, American bank, you know, why on earth are they going to sponsor a British team for the America's Cup? So I went to meet Jamie and he was sat having dinner with Stanley McChrystal and Condoleezza Rice. And I sat down, started talking about the America's Cup, which seemed completely outlandish, really, given the company he was in. And he'd, they'd had a bit to drink. And then he said, do you dance? Which anyone who knows me knows I'm the worst dancer going horrendous, got zero rhythm. I said, no, you really don't. I don't dance. I'm not dancing. He said, come on, you and me, let's dance. I was like, you don't, you don't want to do it. I'm not dancing. And I, you know, bear in mind what I was asking him to contribute to the America's Cup. I kind of thought, well, you know, if the guy wants to dance, the guy wants to dance. So I ended up dancing with Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan, just thinking this is the most ridiculous scenario. What the hell am I doing here? And anyway, he did that and he didn't, he didn't back as <laughs> Not after he's so seen you dancing. Uh, yeah, it must have been the dancing, yeah. yeah. So, um, no, that was a fascinating period, putting that team together. And some, you know, incredibly generous people, you know, like Charles and Keith and Chris Bate, Irvin Laidlaw. Um, forget people here, Roy, you know, uh, Roy Bedlow and, you know, all these, all uh, John, John Wood, Peter Dubens, um, Ian Taylor. Um, there's a great group that came together to, to back the team. And then we were able to go out and get the, the sponsors as well. So um, it was a lot to put together in a short period of time. Um, and it felt all felt a bit crazy um, trying to do that. But, you know, whilst we didn't win the cup last time, but I think we at least put down the foundations for uh, a team to build for the future, which is what we're doing. And we had designers in tears because the poor guys had been really up against it. I remember sitting in an office in London with five lawyers thinking, what am I doing here? None of us are actually going to have lined up against one another properly in anger before we start racing.
I mean, such a, a different role for you as well. I mean, you're used to being almost, you know, a hired gun in some ways, don't you, at the, at the top of the talent tree. And now your name's above the door. You're in charge of so many aspects of the campaign. You know, it's down to you. You know, how did you react to, I guess, taking on all those different pressures? Well, I mean, the best thing, Charles, he was great sounding board. And the first thing he said to me is like, you know, running businesses, running teams, the first thing you've got to work out is that you're going to be way better off hiring people that are better than you, you know, whatever, the sailing design, you know, it's about getting the best possible people. Um, so that, you know, it's kind of obvious, but it's, it's sound advice. And so the tricky thing was trying to find um, someone who could come in and take on a CEO role because you know there've been lots of examples in the cup of people trying to do everything. They're running the team, they're skiffering the boat, they're doing the steering the boat, they're kind of doing everything, and it's it's almost impossible. So uh, biggest challenge was trying to find the right person to come in in the CEO role, and I was going down one route, and then actually somebody introduced me to Martin Whitmarsh. And I uh, went to see Martin up at his home in Woking and his wife, Debs. And, you know, within about, five, you just know, don't you, when you meet someone, you think that's the right thing. So I knew within about three minutes that he was the kind of guy that we needed because we had this vision of the cup, but also to try and build this business um, around the cup and the marine industry here on the South Coast. And, and Martin, what he'd achieved with McLaren and McLaren Technologies. Um, yeah, amazing opportunity to be able to get someone like that involved. So Martin came on board and did a brilliant job really helping us build the team from, from scratch and set, set everything up as we did. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a it, well, it still is, it's a challenge, you know, keeping that focus, core focus as a sailor alongside everything else that's going on in the team. But you know, the secret is having, having the best people around you, you possibly can. Looking back at that last campaign briefly, I mean, it's it's notoriously hard to win for a startup team, isn't it? But you got you got solid funding. Yeah. You had a great looking team set up, and on the surface, it all looked pretty good. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, where did the team lose the last cup? Do you think? Well, we never we were never able to catch up, and on the technical front, um, and it's. It's not only having the best people. We had some really great designers, smart people. You know, Andy Clawton, huge amount of experience running the design team, and some great people also came in from Formula One. Um, but that IP that you build up through campaigns. I mean, you look at Artemis. I think that was a great example as well. So struggled big time in the first campaign, but that IP that they'd learned, developed, they really put that to good good use the second time around. And 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 you know, were many people's hot pick going into the cup itself. So that was where we really challenged, to we struggled to catch up on the, on the IP front. And we also, uh, we also got, we got stuck in trying to test on the water too much. We had a good simulator. James Roach came across from McLaren, set up the simulator and still running that and doing a great job for us. But yeah, we, we put too much focus on trying to test on the water rather than just back in the simulator and focusing on that and doing the development through that, which is which is pretty much what the Kiwis did. Um, so that was probably our strategic error, if you like, and and then just being able to, like I say, catch up on the on the design front. So going into it, we were massively on the back foot. I mean, you know, it was embarrassing, really. You know, being in in Bermuda, we couldn't even sail around the around the track in the practice races because our our systems weren't 
efficient enough at that point. You know, our foils, our foils weren't, our, pre, our, our development foils were, were, um, were not good. Um, but we made some amazing strides, you know, the final sets of all round foils that we had were, were pretty good. Um, we, our designers were pretty clever with um, a few things we did with the rudders and, um, and the systems got a lot better. So actually by the point we got to the competition, I remember we raced against Artemis in the first race and everyone had written us off, you know, and it was kind of annoying. You'd read some of the stuff, try not to read it. Every now you sort of read something with it, you know, everyone's just sort of writing you off and kind of thing. So anyway, we went the first race before the race against Artemis. We actually lined up with them and you did a short practice in the morning. Then you went back, did the dock out and then came out and raced. And in that practice, we actually lined up against them in about 10 knots of breeze. And for the first time ever, that we'd sailed against anyone else in an, in an F50 or AC50 as it was then, we actually were on the pace, you know. And I remember Giles was down to leeward looking at them and sort of calling the relatives. And he was kind of in disbelief, the fact that we were actually holding our own or perhaps even gaining a little bit. And I think everyone else was pretty astonished as well. <laughs> as well. So we went into the race, we had a nice start, got ahead, and we, we kind of managed to hold our lead around the course. Amazing. I mean, we had designers in tears because the poor guys had been really up against it. You know, they'd been taking a battering because we'd been off the pace. But actually, you know, we got ourselves somewhat on the pace. I mean, this was we had a window really of, I think, on our all purpose boards, uh, about you know, 10 to 13, 14 knots, something like that, where we were kind of competitive. We struggled a bit, but we were kind of competitive. And so we won that race. And that was a huge boost for the team. And then, as you mentioned earlier, the second race, we had this issue. We came together with the Japanese. We just started using twist control on the wheel where I was flying the boat. And we'd only been using it for two or three days. Again, we were pretty late behind, behind the other teams on some of this stuff. And basically, we, we hadn't been able to fine tune it. So it was, um, it was quite a, it's a bit like a throttle, really. And um, as the Japanese came in to hook us. I put in more rake uh, to lift the boat out of the water, but just, you know, the fact not being used to it, just put in way too much rake. And so the boat shot up out of the water and did this big sideways slide. And it's kind of a danger in those boats. It, it, it you know, happens quite a lot. And um, but obviously this wasn't a good time to do it. <laughs> Land square on the, on the Japanese, which I don't think any of them were particularly impressed by, I know. I know Dean, Dean wasn't when I saw him afterwards, but um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was my, my mistake, you know, so I sort of took on the chin, apologized, but uh, yeah, that, yeah, I don't think they were too happy about it. And ben, you're used to being in scenarios where, you're, where you can contend yeah. for a win. And here you are in Bermuda, you know quite far out, as you say, you're on the back foot, you know, and it's, your team, it's your reputation. Yeah. At home in the UK, it's, a, it's been a massive deal. It's a huge publicity, you know, we're gonna bring the cup home. Yeah. Personally for you at that time, you know, how hard was it all? Yeah, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done because, yeah, I'm sort of put the team together, leading it, a lot of expectation. We'd won the World Series, so kind of in a way, whilst that was great from a sailing perspective, that just kind of heaped more expectation on the whole thing. And knowing before we even went that we were massively behind, you know, we probably weren't 
almost, you know, you never give up, but probably we weren't going to win it. And then trying to keep the team going, keep positive whilst things were clearly, you know, we were clearly off the pace was very, very difficult. Um, and then the competition itself um, was was frustrating. Um, you know, I was really, I mean, I still said this a lot, I was really proud of the team that they, they held it together. Because um, at one point it really did like, like a bit of a lost cause, but they held it together. We made a lot of big gains and we were, you know, we were somewhat competitive. Okay, we, we lost to the Kiwis in the end, but uh, you know, if you, it wouldn't have taken too much to change there. They were clearly done a better job with faster. But if you think about that cap size, we lost two races, our wing broke down. Um, and you know, another few things going differently. Um, we were we were sort of competitive, um, and like I said, the team did a. I think the team stuck together and did a good job, all things considered. I often wonder, Ben. I mean, at the time, am I right, memory-wise, that you had much of the commitment and funding in place for a two-cup campaign? You're there. You're watching yeah. the cup itself unfold, and. As we know, the winner writes the rules. So you must you must have had a preference as a sailor, as a team principal, as, as an owner of a team. What are you thinking back in Bermuda? Did you want a, a totally new AC class, as we've now seen? Or did you want things to say similar to the AC50 class as it was? I mean, how did yeah. all that work out? Yeah, so, you know, we had put a lot of work into the framework agreement. Martin was actually quite instrumental in that with his experience, similar experiences in Formula One. So he worked quite closely and well with Russell on that. And all of the teams, apart from the Kiwis, you know, were behind that. And we, obviously I was behind that because as a principal, I could see the costs were really high. Actually, if we could bring it back to a sort of format that was justifiable commercially, then you can start building something and build something for the long term. You know, stop, start changing boats all the time. The high costs mean that it's really, really hard to grow the, the sport, certainly grow the America's Cup. So that was, uh, you know, it was, as it became more and more clear that the Kiwis were probably going to win, that was obviously a disappointment. Um, and obviously a disappointment that we hadn't been able to get ourselves, you know, performing better and get further along the competition. But I mean, my thought process was, there's no way we can leave it like this. We've got to, got to keep going. So I, yeah, I kind of, I kind of um, not threw everyone under the bus, but I just thought, well, the only way to do that is to go out and tell everyone that we're doing it. And you know, the, thankfully, the Land Rovers of this world and and Keith and Charles and and the other backers were were kind of supportive and said, well, yeah, okay, I guess so. I guess we are doing it if you just told everyone we're doing it. So, so we didn't really, we didn't actually have any anything committed, but they were they were amazing. They came in and we started talking about how we could rebuild the team. Uh, Land Rover re-signed a lot of our sponsors re-signed to go again, um, and uh, then we had to go through this process, of course, waiting for what the boat was going to be, what the Kiwis and the Italians had decided, and that took a while. Um, to be fair, they they turned things around about as quickly as you probably could, but it did still took a good six to eight months. And then once it was clear what the program was looking like, most importantly, what the boat was looking like, uh, then it was clear it was going to cost a lot more than we thought. And that our model was going to be, a, it was going to be a serious push to get the financing in place. And then for a mutual friend, I was introduced to Jim Ratcliffe and we 
you know, it's been talked about in the press. We literally went and caught up in a club in London, had, had, a, had a couple of beers, and pretty much in the space of a couple of hours, he decided he was, he was into it, he likes, loves a challenge, doesn't get any bigger than this, and, um, you know, passionate Brit, backing British sports. So um, he, he, he said he'd do it, but this was, became, then became very difficult because, you know, he, you know, it's Ineos, people say it's the biggest business you've never heard of until recently. And so part of that was, this needs to be an Ineos team. You know, we don't want, we haven't got the space, unfortunately, for the other partners. And so that was a difficult period for me, then uh, pulling this, you know, this um, switch in the team around from, you know, um, you know, commercial backing and private investment to just one, one sole sponsor. Um, but, you know, to everyone's credit who was involved, um, they all could see um, what needed to be done, how much it was going to cost. And, and I think in the end agreed that this was the right to give the boat, the team the best chance to be successful. This was the right move to make. It can't have been easy. I mean, it, it, in the end with BR, yeah. it felt like, like a real family, almost, you know, yeah. on a mission. It was very British. It was. And I, yeah. I mean, I, I had some amazing, so you could probably remember, a chap called Bill Reed, who's the head of mergers and acquisitions for Ineos. So I had to really negotiate with Bill how we were going to do this. And I remember at one point sitting in an office in London with five lawyers thinking, what the hell am I doing? What am I doing here? And, um, you know, life used to be so simple when I was sailing around in my laser on my own. You know? <laughs> um, but we did. I mean, we got there in the end. It was, it was pretty tricky at times. But yeah, it was amazing insight into that world and doing deals and that sort of thing. And Ineos, you know, is an amazing company. You know, Jim Ratcliffe himself is an amazing guy. Um, but Ineos, its success um, in the corporate world, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been, it's been a, a real eye-opener seeing how they operate and the success that they've had. How has that investment changed, you know, where you now focus your attention? Well, it's, it's and this was the, you know, big, reason for making the switch was you know one one backer you're much more focused um so the other key part of this was it was uh on the back of um, bermuda um martin had done his bit and he kind of wanted to move away and and you know the amount of time and focus it wasn't really the right thing for him and also trying to bring in someone with uh you know, an America's Cup track record. So Grant, getting Grant to come over was a big deal. Um, that took a bit of convincing, but I managed to convince him in the end. Um, uh, so, you know, Grant, getting Grant helping restructure the team, then getting the fi financing in place, that's meant that we, we've been, been able to be much more focused and, and also set, set a strategy around knowing that we got a budget in place. Whereas last time we, we had a, desired budget that we were kind of planning around but we actually we almost got there we didn't quite get there but you know trying to set a strategy around that's hard what does grant simmer add to it all why him ah oh, grant just bags of experience you know he's seen everything in the cup that's got to throw up in the last 30 odd years he's you know been at the top of the game in every aspect be that as a sailor or designer or a manager so he gets the whole picture and I think that's really helpful because 
you know you can go through certain decisions and again he get he gets it from every angle um and there aren't that many people who've got that big picture um so that that's really grant grant's um expertise and uh, yeah he and i've have worked together for quite a long time now um so got a good relationship and good level of trust which is kind of what you need talk to us about the ac75 we spoke to your head of design nick holroyd for our cup design podcast a few months back yeah. so we, we know a lot about the boats themselves but from the sailors perspective they can look a little intimidating i mean how much are you enjoying sailing the the ac75 and how much is it is it really pushing the envelope yeah like i mean they're real beasts you know they're a bit like the ac72 in terms of the scale and the power and the performance actually strikingly similar uh you know technically they're again a man eater in terms of design time and hours and focus. Um, I mean, they're a huge amount of fun to sail. I mean, pretty tricky to sail because obviously you've only got one rudder and if you lose that, you're in all sorts of bother. So uh, that's a challenge. And then, you know, there are certain elements, you know, I think some people are for it. Some, I mean, the double um, film mainsail, I think, frankly, is a bit of a waste of time. Um, but that's, that is what it is. We can't change that. Um, you know, I think, I think, like I said earlier, it's got a lot of similarities to 2013 and, and of course the AC72 and that none of us are actually going to have lined up against one another properly in anger before we start racing in the, in the Challenger series, at least. So those teams that can react quickly and fast are going to, that's what, that's what it's going to take um, because there's going to be a lot, a huge amount of development at the last minute. So, I mean, we've got a great team here. I'm, I think we are well set up to do that, but, you know, I'm pretty certain that's what it's going to require. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, a, they're a serious challenge, both on and off the water. What do you make of what you've seen of your rivals? Yeah, Team New Zealand, as you'd expect, you know, they're well run, been at it a long time, got good people good sailors their first boat I like it's a good boat um, good concept yeah I mean they're going to be incredibly tough to be on home waters um, the Italian I think you know Prada have done a good job you know again their boat it's it's a good boat um, I think they've been really innovative in a lot of their concepts which is good and they've got you know great again great sailors and they've been at it a long time so they, they've They've got their processes in place and so on. So I think they will they will be really strong actually. And the Americans, a bit like ourselves, you know, kind of got the class rule a bit later. They're a new organization, but I think from what I've seen, for a new organization, okay, they've been doing two P52s and mini maxes and, and Terry's been running that. But I think actually, to their credit, they've done a really good job as a new team to build that up and and you know, I don't know, but from what it looks like to me, they kind of met their their deadlines in terms of building manufacturing, and that's often as a new organization can often be really hard. So, and again, great sailors, great designers. So I, I think all the teams are going to be really strong. Um, well, they're all certainly on paper, really strong teams. So it's going to be, it's going to be a real tight one, I think. Um, but the big, you know, I said again, um, this fact that no one will have really lined up properly. Someone's going to have got to jump from somewhere and then everyone else will be trying to catch up. And whether or not you can do that in time and surpass that, that will be uh, that will be the key. Yeah, you're going to have to be nimble. Yeah. Yeah.
Let's talk about the cup generally, Ben. I mean, it's obviously hugely important to you for a number of reasons. How important would it be for you personally if Sir Ben Ainsley's name went down in the cup's incredible long history as the man that finally brought the cup back to the British Trophy Cabinet? Well, I mean, personally, yeah, it would be amazing, but it's more really, it's obviously the team that does it. So it's to me, it's about, well, first and foremost, just getting that trophy back. Jamie Sheldon, who's a Commodore of the Yacht Squadron, who's just a great guy, has uh, been one of the actual uh, many pluses of this is, is building a relationship with Jamie and his wife, Susie, they're great fun. And, uh, you know, the joy that I think for all of us to get that America's Cup back on that Yacht Squadron uh, mantelpiece, that would be massive for, for British sailing and, and British sport, really. So I think that's not just personally, but I know the whole team, that's what motivates us to do this because it is hard work, the Cup. I'm sure everyone's spoken to it. It sounds glamorous. It can be glamorous at times when you get to competition, but most of all, it's just bloody hard work. And you've got to really want to do it to do it well and um, and the team here do they, I mean they work incredibly hard and they're motivated so that's why we do it yeah but what about for you personally then? yeah it'd be the same it's that you know that's why I'm motivated to do it because I want to get the America's Cup back on that mental piece and that would be you know an amazing achievement for all of us and you know I'd be part of that so um, yeah be proud um, it'd be another thing ticked off that list does it frustrate you at all, Ben? I mean, we've seen ticker tape parades for England's rugby team, cricket teams, and in Australia when the Aussies won the Cup, of course, and in New Zealand. But it's hard to imagine that here in the UK. Despite the America's Cup being the trophy we gave away and have never yeah. won back, it's almost a living example of British sporting failure. So to win it would be a huge sporting and historical significance. How big an achievement do you think it would be perceived publicly? I think it would be, I think it would be pretty massive. I think, like you say, when you look back to the history and the fact that we've never won it, never even come close to winning it really. Um, I think that's why people are a bit sort of subdued maybe in the UK towards the cup. You look at other, as you mentioned, some of the other countries where they have won and it's been huge. I mean, look at, you know, Switzerland. No one ever thought Switzerland would have won the America's Cup. Um, so I think we do have a very strong maritime presence. Obviously, it's an island nation. Our maritime history here in Portsmouth is the, is the center of that. So I think, you know, if we can actually get the team to the point of looking like it's got half a chance of winning it, then I think we'll find that, that people will pay attention in, it in a big way. And it would be one of those, you know, you think back to cycling, Obviously, cycling is a much bigger sport, but that moment when it looked like, geez, you know, Bradley Wiggins might actually win the Tour de France here. Wow. I mean, that was just a huge moment in, in British sport. And I think it would be, you know, something similar to that. Is there anything bigger in sailing and in our sports? Do you think there's anything you could achieve that would be more important to you than winning the America's Cup? No. No, it's the, the the history of the cup. You know, the fact it's the only thing really that we've never won in sailing, as far as I can can think of. Um, you know, we've had amazing success offshore. People like Ellen MacArthur and, and now Alex Thompson going for the for the Vendée, and hopefully he, he can knock that one off. Um, and 
way back, you know, Robin Knox Johnson, who's local here to Portsmouth, who I've got to know very well over the years, who's an amazing guy. And, um, you know, all the way back for our maritime history, the, the, you know, the cup's the only thing. Um, and it still staggers me when you think of the engineering talent, design talent, um, the sort of people who have the firepower and are, and are passionate about backing sailing in the UK and all of our amazing sailors that we've had over the years. It still astounds me that we've never been able to put it together, but you have to have the three key elements. You've got to have the money, you've got to have the right design, technical expertise, and you've got the right sailors. And for whatever reason, we've never been able to put all that together at once. But I hope, I think that finally we've, we've got that and we, we're building a team that can do, it's you know, one thing to, to win it, but then it's to, to sustain that and to keep going and that's, I think if you look at Team New Zealand, you know, you really have to take your hat off to them, how they've managed to do that. Okay, they had that blip and then Grant Dalton came in and managed to rebuild the team. So they, they've been in the cup game now for most 30 years. And that experience that you build up time after time, it's, you know, it's a little bit like our Olympic program, which is traditionally does very, very well because you build that know-how, you get the confidence, we know we can win this, and this is a process and that's what you're going to, build up what we're trying to build up with this team. Ben, I started this podcast talking about when we first met. An awful lot has happened since then, hasn't it? I mean, you've achieved, you've achieved so much. As we sit here now in your America's Cup base, the black carbon AC75 outside, can you tell me, Ben, how has it changed you? How different are you now from that talented 14-year-old boy? In the dinner queue. Uh, well, I've you know, like everybody else, you go through life experiences and and both through sailing and well, on and off the water, things have changed as they never inevitably they do. Um, I'm obviously not as shy as I once was, um, but uh, I think probably still underlying is that passion for the sport and and being on the water, and even these last three months not being able to sail like as for everybody else, being really frustrating. And I remember the first moment I take the boat across from Benbridge, which those are, it's about five miles on the other side of across the Solent to the Isle of Wight. And just getting back out on that boat, that sensation of the water running under the boat and that sense of freedom that you get when you're in a boat, that's still the same as powerful for me as it was when I was six years old or whenever it was. So I'm really fortunate. I think I do genuinely love sailing and I'll, you know, always sail and, um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's that's the key. I'm yeah, really really lucky to be able to be able to say that I can do that. That genuinely, my passion is 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 my career and what I'm, what I'm able to do. Ben Ainsley, thank you. The passion and love of sailing by one of the most decorated sailors of all time. I do hope you've enjoyed our time with Ben. We've seen some real insights into his unprecedented career, but not just on the water. It's fascinating to hear what it takes to try and get a viable America's Cup team up and running. And in that endeavor, we do of course wish him all the very best. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us any feedback. It's all important in the podcast world. So please let me know what you think, write a review, and do please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. The podcast is, as ever, produced by Tim at Vertigo Films. A massive thanks to Tim for all his time and hard work bringing you these listens. 
and a big thanks to Ben and his team at INEAS Team UK for making it all happen. I also want to say a quick thanks to SailGP for letting us use some of their footage from Sydney in promoting the podcast and to the wonderful Rick Tomlinson. Rick took those great pictures of Ben at London 2012 that you may have seen on my social media channels. So Rick, thanks so much for digging those out for us. So that's it from me until next time. Thank you so much for listening and sail safe everyone. Castle One standing by. Out. Oh.